0: morning and welcome to the first unitarian universalist church of austin we are a spirited group of people dedicated to the free search for truth meaning dedicated to the eight principles of Unitarian universalism dedicated to being in right relationship with one another and with ourselves and with the earth We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so if you have comments on the platform with which you are watching us, please do greet the divine in the others who are here. From your heart to our hearts, let us know where you're watching from.
1: I invite you now to say the chalice-lighting words with me if you were moved to do so.
0: This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation.
2: This is a poem called Fitted for This Day by Reverend Kimberly Quinn Johnson, who is the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of South Fork in New York. And she was an adult at Summer Seminary when I went in 2019 and is an inspiration to me to this day. She wrote this poem inspired by the words of June Jordan in Poem for South African Women, which she presented at the UN Conference on August 9, 1978. And those words are echoed throughout the poem and are the first line. Fitted for this day. We are the ones we have been waiting for. We are not perfect, but we are perfectly fitted for this day. We are not without fault. But we can be honest to face our path and chart as we chart a new future. We are the ones we have been waiting for. May we be bold and courageous to chart that new future. May we have faith in a future that is not known. We are the ones we have been waiting for.
0: This congregation has a mission that guides us as we make our decisions. We wrote it on the wall of the sanctuary and we say it together every Sunday. Please join me in saying it. Together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. After we say the mission, usually we have a moment for beloved community... And today, it's about peonage, which is a word I did not know. Let me tell you about it. In 1866, one year after the 13th Amendment was ratified, abolishing slavery, uh, these states, Alabama, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, Tennessee, and South Carolina, began to lease out convicts for labor. This leasing is called peonage. This made the business of arresting black people very lucrative. In these states, hundreds of new white male police officers were hired in order to enforce what was known then as the black codes. The black codes were... Immensely complicated list of regulations no one could keep up with and if a black man, woman, or child broke the black code laws they would be arrested and if they were arrested and put in jail they could be leased out for labor on the plantations which had reverted to their owners and for the state's building of roads etc. This offering of labor at a very low pay still exists today, but the leasing out of convicts ended after World War II. So it went from 1866 to the 1940s. Just ask yourself how this might relate to the DNA of policing and the DNA of the prison system, and the DNA of the American people. It's white supremacy culture designed to allow white people to get and stay on top, whereas the black folks are playing this game of our culture at the highest level of difficulty.
2: I am going to read you a poem called Utterance of the Timeless Word by Angela Herrera, who is the senior minister at First Unitarian Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and this is one of my favorite poems that I know of so far. You bring yourself before the sacred, before the holy, before what is ultimate and bigger than your lone life. Bigger than your worries. Bigger than your money problems. Bigger than the fight you had with your sister and your aches and pains. Bigger even than your whole being. Yourself who is part of and trapped within and blessed with a body that does what you want and doesn't do what you want and wants all the wrong things and wants all the right things. You stand at the edge of mystery, at the edge of the deep, with the light streaming at you, and you can't hide anything, not even from yourself, when you stand there like that. And then, what? Maybe you call your pastor and say, what is this? What am I looking at? What do I do? And your pastor comes and stands at the edge with you and looks over. She can't hide anything either, she thinks. Not even the fact that she doesn't know the answer to your question. And she wonders if you can tell. She thinks of all of the generations who've come there before you and cast words out towards the source of that light, wanting to name it. Somehow, she thinks to herself, the name stayed tethered to the aging world and got old, while the light remains timeless and burns without dimming. Meanwhile, the armful of worries you brought to the edge of mystery have fluttered to your feet. Unobscured by these, you shine back, light emanating unto light. You, with your broken heart, and your seeking you are the utterance of the timeless word the name of the holy is pronounced through your being i invite you to join me in an
0: attitude of prayer and meditation as we come to a quiet part in our service this is pride sunday our pride sunday I'm going to tell you all about my coming out story. And what I want you to know is that every LGBTQ plus person is an individual on their own. And there's no coming out story that speaks for everyone. And as we meditate, you are welcome to pray for the things that you pray for or ask for clarity, wisdom, compassion, and you are also invited to think about your own particularity and how nobody else's story is like yours. now invite you to light a candle of joy or sorrow, or hope or remembrance or a candle that represents a vow that you are making today.
1: a boy. I'm glad he didn't check. I learned to fly. I learned to fight. I lived a whole life in one night. We saved each other's lives out on the pirate. Friends, and I hear somebody tell me it's not safe, someone should help me. I need to find a nice man to bring me home. When I was a boy, I scared the pants of of my mom, climb what I I knew the tricks that are almost- the signs say less is more, more that's tight means more to see, more for them, not more for me, that can help me climb a tree in ten seconds flat, when I was a boy, see the picture that was me, grass stained shirt and dusty knee. have got to change They've got pills to sell They've got implants to put in They've got implants to remove Except when I'm tired Except when I'm getting caught off guard And I've had a lonesome awful day The conversation finds its way To catching fireflies out on the backyard And and so I tell the men I'm with About the other life I lived And I say, now you're top gun, and I have lost, and now you've won. And he says, oh no, oh no, can't you see, when I was a girl, my mom and I, we always talked, I picked flowers, everywhere.
0: just one coming out story this is my coming out story the parts of it that I remember the parts of it that I'm interested in telling I remember the first lesbians I ever saw we were in Mexico and I was uh, sitting by the pool I was 12 my dad was here my mom was over there my little sister was in the pool I think and there was a woman with slicked back hair very short And she was in a black one-piece bathing suit, and she was pushing along a float. And on the float was this, well, it's what if you were in the gay male culture, you would have called a twink. I don't know what it's called in the lesbian culture, but she was a um, young, white, slender woman in a rhinestone bikini, I kid you not. And so I watched them, but I was more fascinated by the woman in the one-piece black suit than in the rhinestone bikini and I thought about them a lot and my dad looked over at them and did like this with his elbow and he goes Maggie those are lesbians I thought about that too he didn't have any judgment in his voice I was just curious I didn't have any attraction to either one of them I was just fascinated I was fascinated Several years later, I was in ninth grade, and this girl in my class, we'll call her M, she became fascinated with me, and she began um, making sexual overtures to me. And I went along, and I was interested, and kissing her felt good and we could have sleepovers and the parents were not suspicious <laughs> although they should have been until my best friend found out my best friend confronted me and said she was very worried about my behavior with m and that didn't she know that my whole reputation was going to be trash and i said really okay i mean i don't know i I don't really mind that much one way or the other. It was an inconclusive conversation. I didn't promise her one thing or the other. And later on I learned from someone who I'm not sure was a great source. I'm not sure, but this person in my class said that my best friend's mother had typed up a letter about my relationship with M and had sent it to all the parents in an alarming kind of, oh, no, we have lesbians in the class kind of way well M's parents got hold of that letter of course and M disappeared she disappeared from our class for a while I didn't know what had happened until later this was 1969 and I don't know how many of you can really understand the threat that was hanging over people's heads who were gay. What had happened with M was that her parents had taken her to a psychiatrist and I think they had put her in an institution to cure her. The uh, psychiatric association still had homosexuality listed as a mental disorder My Aunt Ruth had just written a book. She was a psychiatrist. She had just written a book, bless her heart, uh, about uh, homosexuality and how it meant that you were confused and uh, uh, Freudian mother, blah, blah, seductive, not nurturing, blah, 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 some kind of immaturity, yada, yada. There was no one... Who would have been happy for me finding a girlfriend? I found a boyfriend, too, so uh, people stopped worrying. But when M came back to school, I'm ashamed of what I did, which was ignore her, turn my back on her, cold shoulder her, ghost her. I pretended that I had nothing to do with what had happened and that it was all on her. I don't feel guilty about it anymore, but I did for years. And the reason I don't is that she called me out of the blue one day when I was in my late 30s. I had two small children screaming and playing in the background. And... um, the upshot of that conversation was that I got to say how sorry I was for how I had treated her, and she got to say, I forgive you. That meant the world to me. I went to college, I fell in amongst the Christians, the campus Christians, Intervarsity Fellowship. I uh I had a friend who turned out also to be gay, but we weren't gay at that time. We had boyfriends. And um, then I went to seminary. And I uh, had boyfriends there, too. I got engaged to a cellist, medical student. Um, But I just didn't, you know, I didn't feel for him what I should have felt. So... Uh, When I met Mark, who ended up being my husband, and I did feel what I should have felt, I fell in love with him hard. Um, I called the first guy and said, you know how I said I was never going to get married and that I was really uh, against marriage and yada, yada, well, I'm going to get married this spring and not to you. So, I mean, I said it a lot nicer than that. And the reason I married Mark... Was number one, he was funny and handsome, and he was uh, also a seminary student and smart. Oh my God, everybody was scared of him because he would he would look down his glasses at you if you were a fool in class, and he would say, "Did you do the reading?" There's always one person like that in the seminary classes, and nobody's ever done all the reading except him. He did it. And when we decided that we were going to get married, I said to him, you know, I'm lesbian (laughs) in every way but sexually. I like being around women. I I like conversing with women. I want to uh, hang out with my women friends here. And um, he said, that's okay because I will be a lesbian too, this smart man said. He said, I um, I will be in a relationship with you as if we were two women, and we will divide household tasks as two women would, and we will converse as two women would, and I will just be the woman that you wake up with in the morning. And I will set aside my male privilege, and we will have the same privilege together. Well, gosh, I mean, that sounded good. So we got married and it was great Um, for a while it was great and uh, complicated but needless to say he was and is a man and that is good (laughs) and he couldn't live with me like a woman would there's too much structure in our culture around gendered roles and gendered behavior plus there are reasons for that and some people because they're way over here on the masculine side of the spectrum whatever that means or way over here on the feminine side of the spectrum whatever that means and some people now get to be in the middle and not have to choose which I think is fantastic and some people presented birth on the wrong side of the spectrum for them they don't feel like they belong here and so they they Nowadays, can sometimes get to move with courage and trepidation and lots of people saying, are you sure you know what you're doing? To where they feel comfortable presenting and behaving on the spectrum. You know, um, we were married for 17 years and we had two sons who are wonderful. And so I wouldn't change anything about it. Not a thing. When we'd been married about fourteen years, I fell in love with my best friend. She was an amazing woman. Um we talked on the phone for an hour every night. That's how my husband heard what was going on in my life, because I'd be sitting there on the couch. And he liked to watch sports with the sound turned off and read Kierkegaard. And um, so he would hear me talking to her about my day, and we would talk for about an hour, and um, we told each other everything. And so the time when I fell in love with her was like being hit by a train, and I tried to get away from the train. I tried not to be in love with her, but I just couldn't. And I discussed it with myself. I said, okay, I know, because people would get us mixed up. We looked very much alike. And they would come up to me and start, uh, and they would finish conversations with me that they had started with her. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And I was like, are you sure you're not finishing a conversation that you started with her? And they would go, oh, no, my God, I'm so sorry. I thought you were her. So I said, I know what this is. <laughs> this is radical self-acceptance. And I can see now how someone could be in love with me because she and I look alike and we, we are, our personalities are not exactly alike, but... I can see how someone could be in love with me because I am so in love with her. But, you know, she was straight. Six o'clock, that's what we say. She was straight up and down, six o'clock. And so she was not going to love me back the way that I loved her. Um, so I began leaving my marriage. So for the last three years, it wasn't that much fun. And I told my... Mark that I, I had found Unitarian Universalism and that I was going to begin transferring my ordination from Presbyterian to Unitarian Universalist. And I also told him one night, when we were on our way to a, um, an Indigo Girls concert, I said, I'm going to cry through this whole concert because I'm going to look down at the front and all the lesbians are going to be there and I'm not with them and I feel like I should be with them. And I, I think I really need to end our marriage and, and live as a lesbian. And he said, Lesbian? I thought I was Unitarian. I Lesbian too? Well, this is hard. So yes, I ended my marriage and began living as a lesbian. And I knew that at that point I was the I was like one of the top couples counselors in that little town. I was the unofficial chaplain to the junior league and all the medical community. I knew that that was not going to last. And plus, if you're ending your marriage, to be a marriage counselor is kind of disingenuous because you just want to say to people, listen, it's too hard. It's just too hard. Give up. I gave up. So I needed another job. And the Unitarian Church called me. Because I had preached there a few times. And they said, we need uh, we need an interim minister because our minister has just left. And we want you to be our interim minister. And um, you have said to somebody that you were switching your ordination to Unitarian Universalist, so that will work out really well. And I said, I'll do it if we can make it two years. A two-year interim. And they said, done. So I went to start working. I said, I need to tell you that I'm going to be going through a divorce while I'm working here. So it's going to be choppy waters in my personal life. And they were like, oh, yeah, we've all been divorced. (laughs) It doesn't matter. And so then I was about six months into the interim ministry there in South Carolina in this small town. And I needed to come out to them as a lesbian. And so in the board meeting... I said, I need us to go into executive session. I have something to tell you. And so we went into executive session, and I said to the board, I know this is going to cause difficulties for this congregation because I know y'all are always worried about being the gay church because every Unitarian Universalist church in the country went through a phase of being worried that they were going to be the gay church. I said, but I need to live as a lesbian in order to live authentically. And I know you want me to live that way, and I need to live that way, so I need to come out. And one of the gay men at the end of the table said, just don't think it's going to be good news to everybody. I mean, you're excited about it, but it's not good news to everybody you're going to tell. I was like, man, I knew that. And so the secretary says... What should I write down? I don't know what to write down about this executive session. And this wonderful man who was a high mucky muck on the UUA board, the Unitarian Universalist Association board, lovely math professor, he said, Well, just write that we went into executive session, and then we came out. (laughs) I love him. When I moved... Out of the apartment that I had flown to When I was leaving my marriage I moved with my children Into a house In the very merry middle Of the most Tony snobby neighborhood In that town Right behind The elementary school Because people think That gay folks Are pedophiles And I wanted to make it plain that gay folks are regular as regular as everybody else people with children and rent to pay and groceries to buy and a living to earn and regular people who feed the cat and walk the dog and just do whatever it is that everybody else is doing and I knew that if I tried to hide in that community, because I was well known, I knew if I ducked my head in the least little bit, the hens would gather around me and peck me to death. The hens and the roosters peck you to death if you duck your head, even the most little bit. And so I threw my head up high and moved into the Tony neighborhood. And they did not peck me to death. Some people turned their back on me in the grocery store. I mean, like, dramatically turn their back but it was only a few people it was the same lady who when a lesbian lawyer joined her husband's practice she had everybody in the practice over for dinner she disinfected every room that that lesbian lawyer had been in disinfected it because she thought she was so filthy for being a lesbian people are ridiculous people are ridiculous I can't tell you the number of people who said, Oh, Maggie, I think this is a phase. When you meet the right man, you'll come out of this phase. So two years went by and the interim ministry was over. I spent four years working for a wonderful man named Charlie with my dearest friend named Pat there in the desk next to me. And we wrote songs and told jokes and we had a I mean, I don't tell jokes really, but we had fun. Together, and um, our book had come out called Radio Free Bubba, and we were on a book tour that lasted two years because we brought our guitars to the book tour because book tours are miserable where everybody who comes into the Barnes and Nobles sees the authors over there pathetically at their table and takes the long way around so they don't have to feel sorry for you but we brought our guitars and started singing just for each other and people started coming over and people started buying books and the Barnes and Nobles all over the southeast invited us back over and over and over again so I got to work with Pat and one of the things that made Charlie want to hire me was I quoted a wonderful Texas songwriter his name escapes me right now, um, to him or in one of my readings that I was reading out of one of my books. And I said, um, this Texas songwriter said, here's what I learned about sex in Texas. He said, I learned it was evil, dirty, and dangerous, and you should save it for the ones you love. <sighs> And Charlie just thought that was great, and so he wanted to hire me, and he did, and I had a great four years there. And after four years, the church needed another settled minister, and so they did a nationwide search and hired me, and I was there for seven or eight years. I, I want you to know that whenever you meet a person who's LGBT, LGBTQ, um, You see a person who's had to make some decisions in their life that many people do not have to make, i.e., how am I going to be in this world that doesn't have a place for me? How am I going to present myself? Am I going to hide? Or am I not going to hide? Am I going to be in the closet, which really wears your spirit down? Or am I going to be out of the closet? And all this depends on the age and the culture of the person that you're talking to. A lot of times... Gay folks who are ten more than ten years older than I am—all the only place that was there for them was the gay bar—and so some of them learned to drink too much, and some of them just didn't learn to feel confident applying for jobs that they knew they'd get thrown out of. Quite rightly, they were not confident. I have a dear friend who should have been a teacher. she never applied for that job because she thought she couldn't because she was gay another dear friend who should have been a minister and she never applied for that job because her church had no room for gay people and she didn't feel like being the sacrificial lamb people have had to make decisions about whom to tell and how to tell them and I want to tell you, I never did tell my parents. Well, my mother died before I married Mark. But my father, we lived an hour and a half from him when we were living in Princeton, Kaya and I. And so I just took her down to see him and just said, this is Kaya. And I didn't explain our relationship. He understood. He knew. He'd been in the news business for many years. He, um, and he never, we never talked about it. But it was a big victory when his wife, Bethy, whom I love and adore, put Kaya's name on the Christmas packages. Because what a lot of families do is they just ignore the person or they say you can come to Thanksgiving but your beloved can't If you know a gay person or if you know a transgendered person if you know a non-binary person hold them tenderly they don't have to explain themselves they're just looking for room to be church gives people room to be and my friends
1: that is life-saving life-saving join me as we extinguish our chalice we extinguish this flame but not the light of truth the warmth of community or the fire of commitment
0: these we hold in our hearts until we are together again There's a river flowing in my heart There's a